0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardin.
0: It's Thursday, October 21st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: The race to develop a COVID-19 vaccine was more dramatic behind the scenes than in the headlines. Wall Street Journal reporter Greg Zuckerman joins us to talk about his new book, Chronicling the Likes of Moderna, Novavax, and BioNTech. We'll talk about the
2: latest news in the life sciences, including Biogen's failure to launch, the plight of a COVID pill, and a headline-grabbing statement from one of biotech's most famous scientists.
1: But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking, and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's chief diversity officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change.
3: Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, the need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and in partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash questions to learn more that's g e n e dot com slash ask bigger questions
0: so lately, I feel like it might be fair to say we have been blessed or spoiled with positive news about covid nineteen therapeutics and vaccines. But this week, things kind of changed. Damien, tell us about the news from Atia.
2: That's right. So Atia Pharmaceuticals, a pretty small company, but that has been developing what would be an oral antiviral for COVID-19, which, as we've talked about on this podcast, despite the uh, incredible efficacy of vaccines that are available, a lot of scientists say that really the way out of this pandemic is having also an oral treatment that people could take that would keep them out of the hospital once they're diagnosed with the virus. However, uh, a TS pill is not anytime soon going to be that desired thing. The news we got on Tuesday was that in a mid-stage trial, the pill failed to beat placebo at reducing the measurable level of virus in non-hospitalized people who have been fairly recently diagnosed. And I think one of the reasons that this news kind of clanged in our ears is because so recently we heard from Merck, which is developing a similar but not identical Uh, oral antiviral for COVID-19, who said that in a different trial, their pill reduced the rate of hospitalization by about 50% in people who were recently diagnosed. So, you know, for, for obvious reasons, we all kind of seized on this ATEA news to pick apart what was different about this trial. Is there a difference about the pill? What went wrong, basically?
0: Yeah, one of the interesting responses, I think, uh, to, to those data came from Umar Afat at Evercore ISI, who essentially said it was a failure of trial design and perhaps not so much of the drug itself. And he even went so far as to suggest the viral lowering power of this drug might be similar to Merck's molnupiravir or the, the hammer of Thor, as they like to call it. Um, what did you think about that, Damien, or, or folks that you spoke with?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a fair... Uh, I was going to say criticism, and, and I guess it is a criticism of ATIA because after all, they designed this trial. So Merck focused on patients with at least one risk factor for severe COVID-19, whether that be obesity, diabetes, um, age, I mean, there's many uh, that, that we all know, in the trial in which they demonstrated that 50% benefit that that is likely to get that pill uh, an emergency use authorization and perhaps widespread use um, around the world. Atea instead had kind of an all-comers approach to tri- to the trial. Basically, you had to have a confirmed case of COVID-19 and at least one symptom, and then you could be enrolled. And as, as Umar and a lot of people in science have pointed out, that sets a really high bar for efficacy. We already know from previous trials from monoclonal antibodies and then, of course, the Merck one that... You're going to get the most dramatic difference for patients who were already at high risk of being hospitalized for any kind of therapeutic intervention. And, you know, that's fair enough. And and Atea basically acknowledged that on their conference call. And they have since decided to make modifications to an already ongoing phase three trial, which will delay the data by a year, which is maybe that's probably what I should have led with in terms of talking about this. But I think a fair criticism is, as I said before, we had already seen successful trials from Regeneron, from Eli Lilly, and in this case from Merck. So I think it's a reasonable question to ask of Ateo: Why didn't you change the trial design before? Why did it take this phase two setback to get you to ponder these things that your competitors seem to have already concluded?
0: And one of the things I think is just really disappointing about this is that they made a point to say this drug doesn't appear to have the same safety concerns as molnupiravir, specifically uh, the idea of mutagenicity, that um, it could potentially uh, be linked with cancer or birth defects. Now, Merck has looked at that very closely with molnupiravir and said because of the short duration of treatment, that is not a concern. Um, but I've talked with folks who expect that there will be a very serious post-marketing uh, surveillance system around Molnupiravir if it gets through the FDA um, and perhaps be limited uh, to for, for you know, the patient population uh, to whom it can be given because of that concern. So it's just disappointing that a drug that could be powerful without that potential problem um, is set back for a year.
2: So speaking of setbacks, Adam, uh, Biogen is a, a company we talk about a lot. And Aduhelm, their treatment for Alzheimer's disease, likewise, is a common topic on this podcast. This week, we got an update as to how the commercial rollout of that treatment is going since its FDA
1: approval in June. How is that rollout going? Uh, it's not going well, Damien. Not going well at all. Uh, <laughs> not great, yes. Bob. Biogen reported third quarter earnings results. Uh, on Wednesday, and yeah, we learned that Adjuhelm did uh, $300,000 in sales in in the third quarter, uh, which uh, that is a very low number for a drug that's supposed to be a multi-billion-dollar blockbuster.
0: So, is there any expectation that will pick up? I, I mean, I, I saw one note with the headline. I think it was from Steve Seedhouse at uh, Raymond James, worst drug launch of all time. <laughs>
2: I mean that superlative might be a little premature, but it's certainly not going well. And and you know even Biogen CEO Michelle Venazzo said in effect they feel like they're in an extended pre-launch period because as as we've talked about before Medicare is still going over the data of agihelm and of other similar Alzheimer's treatments before making a conclusion as to how it should be covered. And Medicare really, I mean, one, about 80% of people who would ever get this drug are Medicare beneficiaries because of the age that people usually develop Alzheimer's. But furthermore, private insurance plans, uh, pharmacy benefits managers, large healthcare systems, largely they follow or they, they they take Medicare's opinion very seriously. So Medicare is the standard bearer for this, and they're not expected to have a final decision on Adjihelm until April. And so from Biogen's perspective, they're likely not going to see any meaningful sales until that decision comes through. And that's assuming the decision is positive. There's a range of things that that might happen from the probably unlikely situation that Medicare says, yeah, this is great, Everyone with Alzheimer's should get it. And the also probably unlikely situation, the Medicare says, this is poison. Um, But there's a lot of nuance in the middle as to what will be, what kind of evidence Medicare will require before suggesting that a given patient would be a good candidate for this therapy. So we're kind of locked in this holding pattern, probably until the spring. And in the meantime, Biogen has to face increasingly probing and skeptical questions from Wall Street analysts, from scientists, as we've discussed, um, kind of ad nauseum here in the interim months while while this medicine seems to just kind of languish
1: on the market. And from a stock perspective, the, the reaction was interesting. The uh, stock actually went up on this bad news. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that this is one of those quote unquote clearing events that investors like to talk about. Um, you know, essentially, this sort of clears the decks right now. People know that Adrihelm sales are bad, that the launch is terrible. Um, and, you know, maybe it can only get better from here is kind of what people are thinking. But, uh, you know, I think any sort of hope and optimism that, you know, that Biogen has a sort of near term fix for Adjuhelm have have kind of been washed out.
0: Biogen actually has more drugs than Aduhelm, uh, shockingly, um, and and one of them that ha- has had news in the last uh, couple weeks is Tofersen, um, the ALS drug, uh, and it it did not succeed in a trial, and yet there seems to be potential hope for a path forward there. Um, what was the latest from Biogen on that?
1: yeah, Meg, I wrote about the that study results uh, over the weekend. Toverson is a drug that's being developed for a rare genetically defined form of ALS. Uh, they ran a phase three study and it did not meet its primary endpoint, you know so it really did not show a slowing. Of, of the neurologic symptoms, you know, the motor functions of uh, for these patients compared to a placebo. So it was a disappointing outcome. Like you said, there is still some hope optimism. They, you know, they ran some other analyses in the study that showed that, you know, in other, on some other measures that the drug might have a benefit for patients. And so it's one of those things where, you know, you have a rare... Fatal disease, uh, with patients who have essentially no treatment options. And, and so we'll have to see what happens when Biogen goes to the FDA with these data. You know, are, are, Is the FDA going to be flexible like they were with Alzheimer's uh, and, and maybe approve this drug? Or will they ask Biogen to run another clinical trial?
0: There's so much we could talk about there, but I know we should leave it. But it's just like they keep getting into these situations. And it's probably to some extent, to a great extent, the nature of neuroscience work. Yeah,
2: yeah. Regeneron chief scientist George Yonkopoulos, a former guest of this podcast and a man rarely if ever at a loss for words, um, had some words this week that that got a lot of attention. He was in conversation with our colleague Matt Herper at the health conference in Boston. And, and Regeneron, of course, manufactures a monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID-19. The topic turned to former Secretary of State Colin Powell, who uh, had recently died. And here's what Yonkopoulos had to say.
3: One perfect example that maybe we should actually talk about, which is in a continuing, a continuing, you know, hole in in, in in the whole approach here, is the tragic death of Colin Powell. I don't know all the details of that, but that could probably have been prevented uh, by the use of monoclonal antibodies in the right way. Um, that
2: did not escape uh, notice. So the Financial Times wrote up that a uh, conversation with the headline Regeneron claims COVID antibody drugs might have saved Colin Powell, which led to a less than positive reaction on Twitter, including among scientists who didn't like that characterization. So Meg, you spoke to Yonkopoulos after uh, the incident in question. What was he getting at?
0: Yeah, so the the idea that he was saying, you know, Colin Powell himself should have taken this drug. I mean, in some ways, I think He probably believes that Colin Powell should have been on this drug. But the important part to really uh, point out here is that the conversation that Matt and George were having at Health, George was talking about this drug being used preventively for people who are immunosuppressed and may not get enough protection from vaccines. Um, The idea is that if you can give them this antibody, it's delivering them the immune system's protection, you know, as a drug, and um, that could be helpful if you do it monthly. Um, Regeneron has data uh, showing that that can be helpful, uh, and they have applied for FDA authorization for this, but the FDA has not acted on it, and so it's not broadly available in that indication. Uh, And so, you know, the folks took issue with the idea that uh, Yankopoulos would be commenting on the former Secretary of State's um, health condition without knowing about it. Although, you know, he did actually note he doesn't know about the situation other than noting there were reports that the secretary had multiple myeloma, which would suggest he perhaps didn't get enough benefit from the vaccines. And and more so, it's really a frustration, I think, that both Yankopoulos has, and also we've been hearing from Scott Gottlieb, um, that this isn't an option for people who are uh, immunocompromised, that it could perhaps um, provide more protection for that 3% of the population who isn't protected enough uh, from the vaccine scenes there could be this option of a drug to administer monthly and it's not available and it's not being talked about and that's what he was trying to say i think and it uh, got a little the message got a little misinterpreted
1: Perhaps the most dramatic biotech comeback story in recent history is that of Novavax, a former penny stock that spent decades trying and failing to develop novel medicines before coming up with a powerful COVID-19 vaccine at the height of the pandemic. But that
2: comeback has taken something of a turn. Novavax has repeatedly struggled to actually manufacture doses of its proven vaccine. And a Politico story earlier this week cast further doubt on whether the company will be able to get its act together in time to actually help the millions of people around the world still waiting for doses.
0: Joining us to talk about Novavax, Moderna, and all the players in the race to develop vaccines for this novel virus is Wall Street Journal reporter Greg Zuckerman, whose new book, A Shot to Save the World, comes out October 26th. That's next week. Greg, welcome back to the podcast.
3: Oh, great to be here.
2: So, Greg, I thought of you with respect to Novavax because uh, you wrote for the journal about that great comeback story that they were just a few months ago. And all of these struggles have since ensued and they, they feature in your book as well. I'm curious, what do you think, what went wrong here? Why why did the excellent clinical data that they demonstrated with this vaccine not translate to it already being available to the many people who would like to have it?
3: Yeah, so I love the Novet's story on so many levels. Uh, in some ways it sort of um, is a fun company to watch. They were a penny stock. They came into 2020 with about $100 million of cash. It was all running out. Uh, Employees had a foot out the door. They didn't think they'd make it. And here they are with what some argue is actually the most effective uh, vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine, fewer side effects. Um, just as protective as the mRNA ones. And yet we're still waiting for these guys. Uh, so when it comes to Novavax, I think on the one hand, they've overpromised and were a little bit overconfident, but they also had some really bad luck. Um, they were kicked out of uh, using, they were using this emergent plant uh, in Baltimore and Operation Warp Speed said, you're out of here. We want to put um, J&J and uh, and Astra in there. So that was bad luck as well.
0: I mean, we all saw what happened with that uh, emergent plant with just AstraZeneca and J&J in it, where they accidentally got some AstraZeneca in the J&J. So was it actually bad luck for Novavax? I mean, we we don't know what would have happened if Novavax could have stayed. But I mean, I, I think just more broadly, the point you're making, though, is it seems like Novavax, despite getting More than a billion dollars in funding from Operation Warp Speed was still kind of the underdog in this race, even though they had this great clinical data and maybe they didn't get the support from the government that other companies got. You know, Scott Gottlieb has made the point, maybe they should have been paired up with another company to help them manufacture, like he suggested an Amgen. Why do you think that didn't happen?
3: Well, here's the thing. Um, Amgen's not a vaccine company. You could see them with a vaccine company with some expertise like a GSK or Sanofi, but they already had teamed up on their own version, a similar kind of approach. They're using protein subunit, recombinant uh, a protein approach. So they weren't really someone uh, they could dance with, uh, uh, a partner with at the dance. Um, I could see them with Merck, So I could see the government encouraging them uh, back, you know, in the summer or earlier, 2020, to work with Merck, Merck has, uh, a vaccine that does use the H—it's uh, HPV, which does use this protein subunit approach. But as I write in my book, Merck was sort of half-hearted about being serious about COVID nineteen and approaching and, and uh, COVID nineteen vaccine. There were some people within Merck, some scientists who were excited and said, "Hey, we're Merck—we're vaccine giants. We've got the history. We should be the ones to come up with a vaccine." And others said, "You know, vaccines are an awful business. Let other people." do it. And eventually, you know, they start working on this uh, therapeutic and hopefully uh, that'll be effective. So it's not clear who Novax should have worked with.
1: So, Greg, I want to talk more about the book. I finished it this week and, and really enjoyed it. Um, you know, one of the themes that emerges is, is that the development of COVID vaccines, you know, they didn't just begin in January 2020, but, they, you know, that the scientific foundation for these vaccines. It actually goes all the way back to the 1980s, kind of the early days of the AIDS crisis. And that's where you actually start the book. So why is it important to understand sort of all this sort of scientific foundation of vaccines to to tell the story of the development of COVID vaccines?
3: Yeah, Adam, that's exactly right. And that's why I start with the chase for an HIV vaccine. And I do it um, for a couple of reasons. One is Uh, If you're from the world of science, um, I think it's important to appreciate, or if you want to understand the world of science, it's important to appreciate that breakthroughs don't happen overnight. And there's a lot of slow progress, a lot of frustrations. I spent some time talking about Merck's efforts to find a vaccine for HIV. And it was just an awful, horrible experience. And it led to a vaccine that um, actually put more people at risk and people were depressed within the company. And but but from that frustration uh and and what seemed like it was going to be a dead end, it actually led to both the Oxford work that led to the AstraZeneca um, vaccine, which is um, a, an effective uh, COVID-19 vaccine, as well as work by Dan Baruch in Boston, which led to the J&J uh, COVID-19 vaccine. So these these winding routes, I think, are really kind of fascinating and instructive for for both people in the world of science but but outside uh too so I mean that that's really important but also, I also I wanted to spend some time writing about the evolution of these approaches because it should be reassuring to those who are concerned about how fast these vaccines have been produced. Oh, I don't want to take a vaccine that's been developed overnight. We all know, you know, the average vaccine takes 10 years. Why why should I take a vaccine that has been developed so quickly? And yes, they were turned around really quickly in 2020, record time, really impressive. But the approaches have been honed and and perfected over literally decades as you as you say and i think it's important for the average reader to understand that
2: sort of on a similar point uh you know the book is very much told through the eyes of the scientists who made this happen dating back as you mentioned to uh to the quest for an hiv vaccine um and decisively not through the eyes of the politicians who were so front and center in our lives as we lived through the time period that takes up most of the book that seemed like a conscious decision uh, by the author, who is you. So I was curious, you know, when you sort of mapped this out, how did you come to deciding exactly which story you wanted to tell? When there are so many angles to the broader thing that you're looking at.
3: Yeah, it's a good question. So partly, I find scientists more interesting than politicians, um, and I think they're much more important. And and I believe that there are all kinds of um, interesting, important researchers doing. Uh, Unheralded work within companies, within government agencies as well, NIH, et cetera, that don't get enough attention. And that's sort of what I tried to do with my book. Um, there are scientists within Moderna who, who did breakthrough work that, um, has not been written about and, and it has proved crucial to their vaccine. And uh, sometimes I think maybe the government gets a little too much credit, um, there, but, out in front and center and the in the public every day. So that's part of why I did it too. But I also think that um as 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 helpful as Operation Warp Speed was, and it really was very helpful to all the companies, um, it also inhibited them to some extent as well. They were um uh, curveballs thrown at the companies they had to deal with from the government so um, it, it wasn't it was not an unalloyed uh, good I do think that um, operation warp speed um, w- was something that h- was helpful and needs to get credit but I think the more important work is within uh, is it within the labs <laughs> and that's kind of what I focused on
0: I loved all those details and you know one of my favorite parts early in the book I actually laughed aloud when you described this was just the underdog nature of mrna. And how you point out that when these Caltech researchers discovered it in 1961, they titled their landmark paper, quote, an unstable intermediate carrying information from genes to ribosomes to protein synthesis. And you say, you write here, it was as if Columbus sailed to America and wrote a letter home with the title, New Continent, Not Worth Visiting. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was so great. Yeah. And you just spell out this, this underdog nature and all the people who are working on MRNA for so long and nobody believed them that it would work. I just thought that was lovely. Adam points out you have these great cast of characters here. And he particularly likes um, one character, Juan Andres, and his refrigerator. Tell us about that.
1: I did like I did like that part of the book.
3: <laughs> yeah, Juan Andres is a really uh, interesting character. He's uh, head of manufacturing at Moderna. And he's not a scientist, but he's been around a little while and he knows a little bit of history. And he got scared early on. We're talking January. And he told his family in suburban Boston, hey, uh, we got to stock up on toilet paper. We've got to buy a, a third refrigerator. Um, He started getting really concerned and his family thought he was just nuts, Um you're kidding me, we're gonna buy another refrigerator, where the heck are we gonna put this thing? He had piles up high of of toilet paper and tissues and and they were giggling at him and laughing at him. In some ways he's sort of like the average kind of uh, paranoid guy who, over the years, you know, we, we had SARS, we had MERS, we've had coronaviruses in the past. And many even experts that, that you and I, we've all talked to early on, were a little bit dismissive or not as concerned as they could have been in hindsight. And there was good reason for that. And that's part of the reason I brought him in as, as a as a character. You know, there's reason why um, the average person wasn't that concerned about the coronavirus, but also experts too. So
1: this sounds strange to say, I guess, but, but the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 was Seems like the best thing that ever happened to Moderna. You paint a vivid picture of Moderna in the book, particularly of how it struggled financially and scientifically in the pre-COVID days. Um, you know, even quote heavily from some of Damien Garday's reporting on that very topic. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about Moderna as a company? Because in some way, you know, they, they, like I said, they were struggling and, and then it was COVID that kind of really turned things around for them.
3: So I really like uh, Stefan Bancel, the CEO, of Moderna, and you have to give him a lot of credit. But he's also a very confident guy. And when you start talking to the scientists within the company and the executives within the company, they were much more nervous about their future in late 2019 and early 2020. The company was cutting back on costs, things like spending on travel, et cetera. The stock was down. It was hard for them to raise money. And it wasn't clear what their future is. They had pivoted from therapeutics, from drugs, to vaccines. And one of the crazy things that um, I don't think the average person realizes is vaccines until 2020 were a loser business. No one in the industry really wanted to be in vaccines. So here they are. Moderna had pivoted to vaccines. A lot of investors were down on them. Some big name hedge funds had bailed on the company. We're talking early 2020. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't say <laughs> um, um, they were hoping for something like uh, a new coronavirus, but it allowed them to prove their mettle.
2: So speaking of Moderna, you know, in retrospect, this vaccine has become well, it's their only approved product, but it has become this remarkably successful and profitable product. But one thing that is striking from your book is that, you know, by no means was this a guaranteed endeavor for them. So can you talk about maybe the, the early days of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine experience?
3: Yeah, that's a really good point. So Moderna produced really quickly a vaccine with help from the government. They worked together and um, produced neutralizing antibodies. They're all excited. It seems effective. There's a pandemic coming. They want to produce a lot of vaccines and they need money. And you have to remember back then, we're talking the spring of 2020, Moderna had money issues. And Stefan Benzel is the consummate fundraiser in the biotech world and yet he struck out he went everywhere he went to the gates foundation he went to government agencies nonprofits, etc and said we've got this great vaccine we think we can make it we need to start producing it right now so it's ready to go and he could not make he couldn't raise that money and it was frustrating they were despondent within the company they thought people like um oxford um, astra Uh, maybe Biontech and and Pfizer, they were just blowing right past them. They'd be the ones to produce the vaccine. And, you know, I have to give credit to Wall Street. What they did was a, a big stock deal Um, with Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley purchased over a billion dollars of their stock. Morgan Stanley's betting they could sell it to their clients, and they did. And, you know, big bad pharma, big bad Wall Street. Well, they kind of got together and they made this Moderna vaccine possible. And we have to thank them for that that work and that bet.
0: This was the deal they did like in May after Moderna's phase one data. They were so criticized for that because they did the deal like the day after the data. But was that fair?
3: Exactly. There's other criticism, you know, peer-reviewed, and there was very there were a few uh, people in that trial. And those are all valid criticisms for, for sure. Um, and Morgan Stanley stepped right up, et cetera. But in hindsight, you got to give them credit. And they took that money. Moderna took that money. I think it was 1.2 billion. And they just ran with it. They, they g- gave it to Juan Andres and said, go, 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 spend, spend, spend. And they did. And that's why they were able to produce a vaccine so quickly.
0: Right, and, and I mean, Adam and Damien wrote this story about Tal Sachs, the chief medical officer at the time, cashing out. What was it, guys? A million dollars every week. Uh, essentially, he would cash in options and and sell the stock and, and bank a million dollars every week on Tuesdays. So they called them Tal Tuesdays.
1: Tal Tuesdays.
0: Greg, I mean, <laughs> just like how how did you sort of deal with that? Uh, and thinking about just sort of the pro the personal profiting throughout all of this.
3: Oh, it was a bad luck. Um they would argue, well, they were pre-planned trades, pre-planned sales, but you can take those off. You're in the middle of chasing this historic pandemic. You're trying to save the world, and here you are uh, selling shares. That said, they left a ton of money on the table, all these people. I mean, can you imagine how much wealthier they'd be uh, had they not sold those shares? So yeah, in hindsight, I think even they would admit it, it was it didn't look good, um, and you can criticize them, but um, in hindsight, you know, it didn't make any difference in terms of the effectiveness. Didn't suggest anything. If anything, it suggested they were being excessively cautious. I guess.
1: So Greg's new book is called "A Shot to Save the World," and you know, we talked mostly about Moderna, but the book goes into Pfizer and BioNTech and AstraZeneca, J and J. It covers all the big players in the COVID vaccine race. It's a great read. It's out October twenty sixth. Greg, thanks so much for your time.
3: Oh, it was a lot of fun being here, guys.
1: That does it for
2: another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose.
2: Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if Greg Zuckerman's book is made into a movie, who you think should play Damien Garde because he features in the book. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. My vote is Rami Malek.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. I've just been sitting here knitting. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, Yeah, I appreciate that you enter like a cone of silence when COVID-19 is the topic.
0: (laughs) Adam's done with the pandemic, didn't you know?
1: Where am I?